There you go. Stand with me for reading of God's word. All right, Matthew 23, 15. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Good words. All right, let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would teach us as you always do. We ask that our hearts would be open to hear the things you want to say and that we would leave this place different than when we walked in. God, that we'd be those who, who truly seek out the life of faith that you've called us to and to live in the way that you call us to. Amen. Have a seat. So we are looking at a series of woes that Jesus gives in the New Testament. Uh, I, I keep saying we're seven woes, and I'm doing this over six weeks because apparently, like I said, I can't count. went to public school, and I got issues with counting on my fingers or something. So we're doing these seven woes over six weeks. Uh, a woe was this dire warning that Jesus gave to the religious people of the day. They had gotten so caught up in the religion that they actually left God behind. They got so caught up doing the things of religion that they stopped loving people. They stopped loving God. They just focused on all the things that they had to do. And so through these things, Jesus actually points to different crises within the world that he wants his people to do something about. So when we read these, you look at them and you got to kind of rend your heart and lay it before God and say, you know, guide me. What do we need? Because we desperately need him to guide us. So if you have your Bible open to Matthew 23, 15, we'll look at this again. I like hearing the noise. So. <laughs> Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Once again, public speaking 101, how to influence people and make people like you. Uh, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That's just great. Nice guy. Uh, the setting for this that we looked at was actually over dinner. Okay, So Jesus is actually doing this over dinner. The Pharisees are paying for the dinner while Jesus lays into them. It's, it's beautiful and great. And so his problem and issue here is that you reproduce. He's like, you are like uh, deep south, inbred, deliverance, moonshine steals, glass packs, in your 1950s pickup trucks, and you make offspring just like you. It's like a ding, 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 ding. That went over better in first service. Okay, whatever. So, so far Jesus has said to these people, you have discounted grace, you have misinterpreted the scriptures, you have strained out a gnat while swallowing a camel, you are destructive, you are self-centered, and your problem is, is that you make converts. You make converts. And he says that when you produce, those converts that you make are worse than you are. It's like a bad copy. Anybody here ever went to high school? Okay, just checking. Like, I wonder if it was in the third grade. Okay, so you go through high school. Anybody, like, girls make mixtapes for your boyfriends? Oh, yes, two. Paul. I said, any girls? And you raise your hand. That was... <laughs> any guys make mixtapes for their girlfriends? You could... Yes, there you go. All right. Now, I, I, I kind of did this. And I make this mixtape. You know, there's like, these are songs. You like to say, oh, these songs, and they move your heart, and they make you all gushing. You're like, I'm going to give this to her because she'll love me. You know, and so you make this dumb little tape, and you hand it to them. And so I gave it to this, this girlfriend I had at the time, and then I broke up with her, and I dated this other girl, so I made a copy of that tape. <laughs> they don't know, you know. It's not like they talk. They're like, I hate that girl. He used to date her. You know, they don't talk to him anyway, you know. And then I broke up with her, and I made another copy for another girl. And it, it just kind of goes like that. A copy of a, these kind of, copies just kind of get worse, right? As you, like, did you guys ever see the movie Multiplicity with Michael Keaton? Yeah. Okay. It's like one of those movies from the 80s, and you're like, oh, it was really funny. If you watch it, you're like, that's oh, not so funny. But, you know, apparently then when you watch it, it was funny. He, he makes copies of himself, and then these copies start to make copies of themselves. And eventually you get to some guy going, I got a wallet. 
and I like pizza, and that's all he can really say. It, when you do tapes and stuff, I guess it's really not that bad, but when you get to a place where these Pharisees are copying themselves, the spawns of the Pharisees were more destructive to the way of God than the Pharisees were, and the Pharisees were pretty destructive to the way of God, and that's pretty harsh. His problem is not just about their understanding of faith, but this idea of faith that they are then letting run rampant in their disciples. And so when you look at these things, you have to ask, because it's a lot about the question, what is the positive? If Jesus is this harsh with these guys, then what is the humanity that he calls us to in this? Where's the positive for you and I? If these are guys who are this bad in talking about their faith, then how do you and I talk about faith? How did Jesus talk about faith? How does he talk about God? It's, just, it's a great question. I'm glad I asked it, so you all know. So how did Jesus talk about his faith? Well, I think you ask you, how do you share your faith? When someone asks you about your faith, what do you say? We all have a worldview. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you believe in whatever. <laughs> she knows right where you guys are sitting, too. <laughs> not to point you out or anything. Sorry. Just ignore that last comment. All right. So, I'm really sorry. And, I mean, even atheists, they have a worldview. They have an idea of, of what their faith is, and, and they share that. You have a worldview. How do you talk about it? How do you share your faith? How do you get people to understand where you're coming from? When someone says, oh, you're a Christian, you say, what does that mean? And you say, Jesus, something? I, you know, what, what do you say? And so what does Jesus do when he's confronted about his faith? How does he walk through it? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And hopefully looking at that will help you and your explanation of faith a little bit, and we'll kind of go. So turn to Matthew chapter 7. Say same book. I'm helping you guys out immensely right here. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7. This is how Jesus talks about faith in connection with God. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Ask, seek, knock. Those are the metaphors. What's it like to be a Christian? Well, it's kind of like knocking. Someone asked you that. What's it like to be a Christian? You're like, well, it's like knocking. They're like, what? It's like knocking on a door. The metaphors he uses are active. They are questions. They are, they are seeking. It is asking. It's, it's trying to get this door open. It is this element that is a desire or this urgency for something to be opened so you can know who God is. And in Jesus' understanding of God, and in his understanding of who God is, it is central that God is good, that this faith that he always talks about is tilted towards people. Okay? This faith is always tilted toward you and I. Our Heavenly Father is good. And so when you ask he will answer, and when you seek, you will find, and when you knock, the door will be open. But he doesn't say how, and he doesn't say when. And so there are lots of people who go, and they, and they knock, and they're knocking, and they're knocking, and they're knocking, and, and it's not opening just yet. Because actively built into asking, and seeking, and knocking is the idea of waiting, and longing, and patience, and silence, and Jesus says, you will find, but it may take a while. It may take a while. And what is that? What if that's how we spoke of faith? Well, it's, it's like knocking, you know? We don't expect a worry-free life. We don't expect all of our problems to be solved, because usually when Jesus comes into our lives, he creates a whole new set of problems, which is always wonderful. I mean, our evangelism should be much more honest than it is. In Psalm 77, verses 1 through 3, it says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and groaned. I mused. This is a word for meditated. And my spirit grew faint. It's like the more I meditated, the more exhausted I became. In Psalm 74, verse 1, it says, Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? 
I mean, this is honest. This is vulnerable. Seeking, knocking, asking, God, where are you? I groaned. I cried out. I was looking. More than half the book of Psalms are laments. They are despair. They are seeking God. Central to the experience of God in the scriptures you see over and over is people who have been in pain and distress and silence. That is not what you hear from typical churches today. It's usually like, oh, God wants to give you everything and you're all going to be okay. And that's not what's represented in scripture. It is asking, it is seeking, it is knocking. Jesus never articulates a view that says, come to God and you're going to get cookies and milk. He's going to tie up your life in a little bow. I was writing this actually over Christmas this year, so that's, I guess, why it's in there. Jesus uses metaphors for faith that are a longing. They are unfulfilled quests. They are ultimate reality. You will find, but it may take time. The Bible never promises pain-free existence. Psalm 59, 1-4, through 4, it says, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from bloodthirsty men. Literally, this is men who want my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, O Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me look on my plight. It's like, look and help me. What is it like to be a Christian? Well, it's like knocking. I know there is somebody in the house. I see the TV on. I can, I can hear it. I see shadows. I know somebody's there, so I'm knocking. But I don't know when they're going to get to the door. I don't know what they're going to bring when they bring when they get to the door. But I actively seek and knock because it's better to seek after God than search for anything else in the world. So how else did Jesus describe faith? Turn to John chapter 4. Jesus at this point goes to a well. He sits down because he's tired and he runs into a Samaritan woman. Uh, Jews don't associate with Samaritans and especially women in the middle of the day. This would be like, uh, I don't know what to liken it to. You know, hey, there's that chick danced on the pole at the Kid Rock concert last night and hey, how you doing? It's the middle of the day, no one's around, it's just you and me. People walk by and be like, oh, that's kind of, maybe not. Okay. So Jesus walks up and he starts talking to this girl. Women don't go to the, to the well alone in the middle of the day. There's all kinds of stuff going on here. Actually, uh, starting in September, we're going to walk through the book of John. So we'll go way in depth in this and it'll be great. John chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So there he goes. Talks about asking again, and he also talks about water. Sir, the woman replied, and she points out the obvious, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Jesus is very, very theological, and she's like, You ain't got no bucket. What's your problem? <laughs> you know, and, and he's like, well, if you knew who it was. And she's like, if I knew who you was. It's, it's great. She's like, he's a nutter. Verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Jesus points her to physical water and says, you'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he borrows these very ancient and very deep Hebrew metaphors that have this life in connection with God. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not get thirsty, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So what's the metaphor? Water, water, the deepest reality, Jesus, of, of faith. What's it like? Water. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, open to Psalm 42. In your Bibles. Anybody ever play games or sports and you get like really, really tired and you're like a little kid and you're like, oh, I just, oh, and you're like, I'm so thirsty and I'm so parched and I gotta, I gotta drink something and you get to that, you don't go in the house, you just get the hose and you go, and you turn it on, your mouth goes, as it just sprays and you're, 
Okay. My goodness. Sometimes you people are just like, ah. am I supposed to respond? Yes, respond to me when I ask you questions. That's how it works. Okay. You're like, you know, your legs are just rubber and you're like, oh, I can't stand. You get that water and you swallow and it goes wherever it goes and you're like, ah, just, it's so good. It's quenching. Uh, these, all the images that Jesus gives to this woman, it's, it's an image of that God satisfies your soul. You know, your water, you get thirsty again, but God's water is for the depth of your soul. So Psalm 42, there's lots of places all over the scriptures that deal with this. But I'm just going to give you Psalm 42. You can look through Isaiah. and I'm going through actually Ezekiel in my quiet time right now, and this is all over Ezekiel. Psalm 42, starting in verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Where are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Then verse 7, deep calls to deep, and the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. These beautiful pictures of water and life and what God wants to give to this woman and also to us, water. Many people in Western culture have been taught faith in terms of conquest. It is you're right and they're wrong and your job is to convince them of your rightness and their wrongness. And for others, it's you know, you've got to persuade them what, what you believe is, is right, and, and it is, you know, but you've got to prove to them their wrongness. You've got to make them feel wrong. So they, and it's this whole thing about argument. And you, you can see these people when they interact with non-Christians. Because it's all about winning over. The goal in a conversation is to win someone and prove that they're wrong. And that makes relationships very, very awkward. Doesn't it? Yeah, okay. You know, someone, thank you. Someone comes to your house trying to sell you Amway. It's very awkward. When you got to go, no, Girl Scouts, come here. And you want to buy some Girl Scout cookies? And if you don't want to, you buy some anyway because it's, it's very awkward. Okay. And all the Girl Scouts going to show up to my house to sell me cookies now because I'm like, okay, I'll buy like 10 boxes. Jesus doesn't employ, you know, that method, that winning over. With the Samaritan woman, he talks about faith in terms that God longs to satisfy your soul. Your soul craves God. That is what you are missing. You need Jesus. And Jesus is like, I will satisfy you. And he creates within her this thirst for God. And perhaps that's the role of Christians. We live and love in such a way that this thirst is created in people for the Jesus that we serve and that we love. Yes, Jesus is what your soul craves. It's like water. And these are the fundamentals, the ways that Jesus speaks about faith in God. Asking, seeking, knocking, water, satisfaction. Turn to John chapter 3. Okay. One to the left. Now what happens here is uh, Nicodemus is uh, a Pharisee, and he's actually coming to Jesus by night. There are some things in John's gospel that are just loaded with visuals. And so when you see that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, some people go, oh, that's because he's afraid to be seen, he's trying to hide. Literally in John's gospel, he uses metaphors all over the place, and so literally I think it means that Nicodemus is in the dark, and that Jesus is constantly shown to be the light, and so that he is coming to Jesus because Jesus is light and what he teaches is true. 
Uh, 3.2, Rabbi, this is Nicodemus, we know that we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. And so Jesus doesn't even respond to that. He just dodges the comment. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Literally, this means born from above. And this means it's a continual process of rebirth, of transformation. Every day, God is doing something new within us. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked, surely he cannot enter his a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And I'm sure Jesus is like, no, <laughs> because you can't crawl back in at 50 because that'd be awkward and gross, and I don't think your mom would let you. Okay, This is like the religious guy people have in charge here. Jesus says, if you want to understand why I do what I do, how I trust God, the faith that I'm saying, you have to humble yourself, be open to the fact that there is a different way. You need to be born again, new birth. You're, you are spiritually dead. And you need Christ. You need Jesus to come into you to make you alive again so you can then have a relationship with God. This is where Jesus is working with Nicodemus. Verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water. There's a metaphor again. And the spirit. Water and spirit, once again, loaded terms for Jews. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. And then he kind of changes gears. It's really weird. And he says... The wind blows wherever it pleases. You get the feeling he's talking about new birth, and then he takes the corner, and now we're going to switch to haiku and talk about wind. You know, Because wind in Hebrew, once again, very, very important. The Greek and Hebrew words for wind is spirit, breath, spirit. The wind blows, excuse me, wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. The work of the spirit of God is like wind. It's like wind. And no one knows where it comes from or where it is going. You, you can't put it in a box. You can't say, this is God, and this is how he has to work, and this is how God has to act. Nicodemus is looking for like the seven-step plan, the doctoral thesis, and Jesus says, well, it's like when. It's like, what? What are you doing to me? You know, how does that, how does that work? This is the heaviest little fan I have ever picked up. So Nicodemus says, Jesus... And it takes forever to get going. It's like an old car. He says, what's it like? What's, what's this deepest reality of faith like? It's like wind. It's like wind. Isn't that bizarre? It's good, doesn't it? I did that last service too. Isn't that bizarre? I mean, it's beautiful, but it's totally bizarre. Why do some people experience profound change and and other people don't? Well, it's like wind. Aren't there guarantees? No, there aren't guarantees. I'm a faithful person. Won't it all go well? Not necessarily. If I raise my kids right, won't they follow Jesus? Hopefully. If I read my Bible and I pray, won't my spouse treat me better? (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. What are the guarantees? Ask, seek, knock, water, rebirth, wind. What are the guarantees? The guarantee is this, that God loves you and he wants to build you into the most productive person that he can. That's the guarantee. And what does that look like? Many times it looks like wind. Because we don't know what that's going to look like on the other side. I mean, some people show up, they grow closer to God, they love him more and more daily, they grow closer to the resurrected Christ, they become more compassionate and more loving. Others show up for a while and they seem to make commitment and they walk away. I mean, what is that? What is that? There are no guarantees except who God is. 
Nicodemus says, give me the hard, fast facts. I want those. And Jesus goes, okay, when? That's the hard and fast. I, I think one of the things that God has revealed himself to us, but one of the fundamental things in spirituality for Jesus is mystery. It's mystery. Because we cannot figure out God. That's why we rely on the scriptures to reveal to us who God is. Because it's not something we figure out on our own. And this is why people are transformed by the Spirit of God and years later they still love Him and live for Him all through life's trials. And we as a church at Element want to show the world what that is like. We need to show that in how we live and how we love and what we do for other people. Because most times the only Jesus people are going to know are how you live. I mean, hopefully they don't get the one that's just on TV because that's not a great Jesus, you know. We do a great disservice to anybody if we ever say, come to Jesus and everything's going to be solved. I do believe it gets better. I do believe things get better. But I don't think it'll ever be perfect because this is a journey that God calls us to walk on. Knocking, thirst, satisfaction, when, last one. Well, kind of, yeah. Last one. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 8. Jesus sails to this area. It's called the Gerasenes. Area of the Gerasenes. This is Decapolis. This is a ten-city area that's founded by Alexander the Great, and this is a region where they would have no idea of, of like Jewish metaphors. They had no idea who Jesus was and stuff like that. So Jesus sails there. Luke eight twenty-seven. When Jesus stopped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. Hello, Jesus. I mean, Hello, Jesus. I don't know how that works. Okay. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes and lived in a, or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. So the town greeter is this naked, homeless, homeless guy. It's possessed. It's great for tourism. Half the time I felt like those are the people that live around here. Um, short version of this story is that Jesus casts out the demons uh, into some pigs who run into this lake and, and they die. Uh, pigs were central to the local economy, so Jesus puts a big dent in the economy and the people are are afraid of Jesus at this point. So in verse 37, then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. They're like, we don't want someone with that kind of power here. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. So there's nobody in this area that knows the Jesus story. Just this guy. I mean, and that's the program? That's the naked guy that, I mean, be like, that's the naked guy. He used to be possessed. I don't know. He's kind of, he talks normal now. I mean, there's no pamphlets. There's no intense time of this discipleship. It's just go and tell what God's done for you. And so what does the guy do? He goes. He tells. Later in the Gospels, Jesus actually comes back to this area and great crowds show up to hear him speak. These people didn't know Jewish tradition. They didn't know Jesus. So why did they come to see Jesus? Many scholars think it was this guy and his testimony that went around this area and started telling all that Jesus has done for him. This guy. And some people think, oh, I don't have a story. Everybody has a story. Every believer has a story. And if you want a story that is more than just about you, then you need to find Jesus and his redemption for all of us. His restored relationship for mankind is a beautiful thing. And again, but God is not predictable. He will not fit your box, so you have to have faith asking seeking knocking i mean something is amazing when when people get together and 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 they worship god in in this way because the wind blows the wind blows for this guy in this area that that didn't have all the jewish metaphors what jesus gives him is reporting you simply go and tell you tell your story so the man goes and tells what Jesus has done, and lives become changed. Today we argue about other religions and the fossil record, and we think, oh, I got it all together. And yet our job is to simply witness to the mercy that God has shown us and show that to other people. 
And the, when the world sees that, I think mountains tremble. Uh, I'm going to end with Luke 15. You don't have to turn there. Uh, but this is called the parable of the prodigal son. A few weeks ago, we looked at this kind of in depth. Um, the son here essentially tells his dad that, give me my inheritance. And when the audience at that point would hear, oh, this kid wants his dad to die. What a horrible story. Where can this go? What's Jesus going to do with this? So the story goes, the kid squanders all the inheritance his dad gives him and realizes while he's starving that, oh, if I just get, go home, my father's hired men have more food than I do. So I'm going to go and I'm going to seek forgiveness. This is the word teshuva, to return to what God calls us to be, to return to his father. So the, so the kid rehearses his speech. I'm going to go to my dad and say these things and really apologize a whole lot. And so uh, in Luke 15, 21, the son said to him, that's his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's his rehearsed speech. But while the son's staying, this says, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now, the ramifications for the people who hear this story at this point, they would be like, were those people? Because they were people who had wandered from their father and they had lived in exile. And they were slowly returning home. And Jesus tells a story about a son returning home. And the picture Jesus gives is of a father longing to bring his son home, giving him the best robe. The son who had so long disgraced his family. I think that picture is true for all people. Because we as people live in a way for so long that we disgrace the name of God. And yet he stands there with his robe and says, Come home. I made a way for you to come home. The image is of a return of a son coming to a father and a father giving his best to his son. Come home. You are welcome. You are welcome home. Henry Nouwen speaks about it like this. He says, Leaving home is then much more than a historical event bound to time and place. Leaving home is the denial of the spiritual reality that I belong to God with every part of my being. That God holds me safe in an internal embrace. That I am indeed carved in the palms of God's hands and hidden in their shadows. Leaving home is living as though I don't already have a home and must look far and wide to find one. When we look for our acceptance anywhere other than in God, than in Jesus Christ, we have left home and we have left our faith. You come from God. You have been made by God to live and experience all these expressions of faith. Asking, seeking, knocking, thirst, water, satisfaction, new birth, wind, and faith is like a return home. Faith is like a return home. What is Christianity? What is faith? It's like going home. A home that we were not able to go to. And so Jesus prepared a way for us to go there. And this morning you are all invited to return home. And you lay aside your preconceived ideas of what you think God is. And you trust Jesus as he has revealed himself to be. Jesus is our great God and Savior. He has come to live and die for us. And he rose from the grave to conquer our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And offer us a new way of life. The way to return home. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you this morning to return home. If you do know Jesus and you feel like you've been knocking and asking and seeking and you're getting no response, I will tell you that God is always actively seeking His glory and our good. And you can trust Him for that. You can trust Him. And so you feel like you've been knocking a long time. It's okay. God is good and He will see you through you must have faith to trust that. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we worship. The one that longs to make a difference in the entirety of humanity. And he reached out to us first through his son. And so we trust that.
And so we ask and seek and knock, and we return home. And that's your invitation this morning. Uh, there'll be some elders in the back of the room that are more than willing to pray with you if you need prayer about that. If you, if you want to return home and you have some more questions about that, talk to them. Uh, if you feel like you're just, if, if you are a believer and you're just knocking and knocking and God's not answering and you want some prayer, uh, they'll pray with you. God is good. God is good. Uh, the band's going to come up. And we're going we're gonna to worship God now through communion. Uh, communion remembers Christ's body, which is broken for us. And when you break that crack and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice, remember that Christ's body was broken for us and that his blood was shed for us. And we remember that and how we live. We're going to worship God uh, through prayer. Like I said, there's elders in the back of the room that are more than willing to pray with you. Uh, we're going to worship God also uh, through giving. There's offering boxes in the side wall. There's offering boxes in, in the very back of the room. Uh, we're going to worship God in a little bit uh, through fellowship. And you're invited to hang out and stay and, and hang out in the, the back room or in here or whatever and uh, worship God by hanging out with other people. And we're also going to worship God through song. And we're going to sing some songs to our loving God who loves us so much and has done so much for us. Why don't you pray with me? Father, this morning, we as a people stand in this place and, and we say that, that you are good. And sometimes we knock and we knock and we knock. And God, we're just waiting for you to open the door. And those times that when you do open the door, it is glorious and beautiful. God, for those in this room that don't know you, I ask that you would help them to return home. That they would embrace that way that you made for us to once again enter your presence and enter your arms. And God, ultimately in the end, that you would teach us how to be your people who live and love others in such a way that you are plainly seen. That we don't hide you or hide from you. Because you are so good to us. We ask that you teach us to be good also. Amen.